With every system seeming to fail us, from the Department of Justice to our election systems to our mental health institutions all around the world, how in the world are we ever going to break out of our rut? So a whole bunch of people argue that capitalism or business is to blame. But those can both be pretty incredible tools on the paths to equity and diversity and inclusion. The key is leadership. Philanthropic expert, unparalleled business mind, and CEO of Acumen, Jacqueline Novogratz, joins Politicon this week to share the power of entrepreneurs and problem solvers to fix the messes that our politicians and our partisanship have created, at least if we revolutionize our moral leadership. I'll ask her about the role of young problem solvers in tackling our biggest challenges. How can we ditch politics for problem solving? What does moral leadership mean in 2021? Can we all become stakeholders in our shared future? And how the heck are we going to get along? <laughs> how are you? How are you? I'm very fine. Now, thank where you. Are how you? are you doing? I'm good. Where are you these days? I'm actually you... in London right now. Um, ah, okay. Your husband's from London, is that right? He's a Brit and, um, and, and has two daughters, amazing daughters. And so before the offices all opened, we thought this was our moment um, that we're fully vaxxed to get here and be with the girls. Was it tough to, do, to get to London? Because they've got a heck of a lot of restrictions, yeah? The, the first... The first seven, eight days of quarantine was not fun. Uh, and we were checked on by the security three times who came to our house. Really? To make so sure serious. you hadn't left? They mm-hmm. have taken it seriously. Isn't it interesting that they have taken it seriously and yet far more seriously than maybe America has, arguably? Granted, we're 50 different states with different abilities to, to govern people's movement than they are, but that they still have had sort of the same outcomes almost as the U.S. Uh, why? Um, well, in the beginning, the, you know, so much is leadership. So in the beginning, um, Boris was very slow to call this a pandemic and um, kind of took him to get the disease himself. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the early stage. And then with the NHS, the vaccines really moved. But in a way, you almost had the counterpart to um, Modi in India, Mm. where um, they started to open and a big plane of Indians came, which is where you got the uh, Delta virus. And I'm really glad that Uh, they're calling it the Delta virus, not the India, Indian virus. Different leadership. You know, And so it's, um, I think the UK is just such a, a place that so many people have traveled through and it's, a, it's an island. And so uh, the variants hit, you know, first from South Africa, then from India, and we didn't get that. Right. But so, so obviously I want to talk to you about leadership in general, because your book is Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, right? Um, yeah, very humble title. <laughs> Um, so at least you own it. Um, so <laughs> that's what that's what matters, right? Accountability. Um, uh, yes. But but since we're on that, 
I mean, looking at different leadership styles, you started to talk about Modi. You talked a little bit about Boris Johnson. Um, I, when you talk about the quarantine in the UK, when you went to England, um, I think about Justin Trudeau in Canada and the way they've kind of had that same sort of, they do a three-week quarantine there. At least they were doing that for the bulk of the virus um, last year and I think still are having quite a bit of quarantine time still there. Um, in a situation like this, um, where it is a global pandemic, would we benefit from having somebody who was a global leader? I mean, I'm not suggesting we have a president of the world necessarily, but would we benefit from some leadership that can unify all the countries in some way rather than everybody doing a piecemeal thing? Absolutely, Clay. I mean... You know, I often say that we don't get dignity as a human race until we all get dignity. And those words are, are easy to say, but the um, over and over in my lifetime, I've seen what it actually means in practice. And there's probably no better metaphor for that than the global pandemic, that we won't be safe until everyone is protected. We have the vaccines. We could build the distribution systems. I actually think we could do it in a way that would provide jobs and a real sense of purpose at a moment where so many young people are feeling so without that, uh, to take this on as a, as a great global endeavor that the world could achieve together. And um, what better way to push us as human beings to extend outward in this moment when so many of us are pulling inward. So I'm all in. I don't think we need one czar global leader, but we could certainly have a coalition of leaders who recognize that it, that success for this can't just be one individual, one nation. It's got to be um, a success that starts by making sure that the, the vulnerable are included. But is there not an argument also that when in a situation like this, I mean, the reason they, they do tell you to secure your mask before helping others on an airplane if there's a tragedy, right? I mean, we know now that the United States is buying millions of vaccines that they are going to, the Biden administration announced that, um, to share with other countries. But is there not an argument for needing to take care of one's own nation first before going elsewhere? Or is there a, is, do you have a counter argument to that? I, I don't really ever see things in binaries, as you'll find out. Um, Good. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I, I actually think that it's, it's not either or, that um, we can be protecting and moving as fast as we, can, as we could, whether we were a family or a nation, while at the same time recognizing that we had it and have it within our capacity to be building up the distribution, the manufacturing, and frankly, the vaccines in ways that allow other countries to be um, reaching their populations. And so it wasn't a question, and it isn't a question of either or. Um, indeed, you know, I'm, I'm one of seven kids in a very competitive family, but it didn't mean that within our neighborhood, we didn't care about how the neighbors were doing. Um, and so I, I, I think we make a mistake by positioning everything as either or us, them, um, rather than how do we do the best that we can to protect those at home and ensure that other people around the world 
are getting access. We had a long time to prepare for these vaccines coming out and could have been doing that. So, I mean, I want to obviously come back to the COVID situation whenever you want to, but, um, but I want to just talk <laughs> about leadership in general, because it's not, your book is not just about COVID. I mean, it's not about that, but you, I mean, you've had a, you, you kind of got fed up with Wall Street um, a little bit and you made some changes in your own life and started Acumen and uh, tell, tell, just kind of give, give people who are listening an idea of your path and why all of a sudden you decided to write this book about um, I mean, moral leadership, really, uh, but leadership in general. Moral leadership. So, um, yeah, it's actually a 35-year journey. Uh, so I um, started off, as you said, on Wall Street, but Wall Street globally. I was spending most of my time in Latin America and, frankly, loving the tools of finance and banking, um, how numbers told stories, but realizing as a young woman that I didn't like how low-income people uh, were, were, were literally excluded from the banks. And that sent me on a journey that landed me at, at, at the age of 25 in Rwanda um, back in 1986, so before the Rwandan genocide. And I worked with a small group of Rwandan women then to start the nation's first microfinance bank. Um, so I saw that a small group of people really could change history, at least in a, in a tiny pocket of the world. Um, and if Banking provided great efficiencies but overlooked the poor. What I saw in the world of international development aid, top-down charity, top-down government, was that um, those highly centralized policies too often uh, create dependency and that the opposite of poverty cannot be seen as, as wealth or income. It has to be seen as dignity. It has to be seen as being able to choose who you are and how you live your life, um, how you solve your problems. Um, and that was really the beginning of Acumen, that I didn't any longer think that traditional markets unbound were going to solve problems of poverty, nor did I think that charity uh, without bind would solve problems of poverty. And that was what was needed was another field of possibility. Uh, it started with this idea of patient capital, that we would raise philanthropy, but that we would invest 10, 15 years at a time in entrepreneurs that were solving problems like healthcare, education, uh, energy, agriculture. In the developing world is where we started. India, Pakistan, East Africa. Then we went to West Africa. Then we went to Latin America. And now we're also operating in the United States. Um, and, um, and our companies, which are for-profit companies, uh, have served about 300 million people and have employed tens of thousands of, of individuals around the world. And after doing this for 15 years, about five years ago, um, my board said, it's time for you to write a book. And I sat down and thought it would be a pretty easy book for me to write about patient capital, impact investing, all the technicalities of investing in early stage companies that would, would solve problems of healthcare, for instance. But when I was beginning to write and stepped back, I realized that a lot of people could write that book. The real book was about what separated those individuals who didn't just build companies, but actually changed systems, built nations. And that came down to uh, one word character. That came down to a set of practices that I've come to define really as the moral imagination um, that, um, that I see over and over in entrepreneurial human beings that are there 
in the world to solve tough, some of our toughest problems, not in an ideological way, but in a way that brings them back to the North Star um, with generosity, but also recognizing that they need accountability and I dare say profitability so that they can actually build self-financing systems. How many people in business, in the business world, in the finance world, and I mean, in, in any pro- for-profit segment, do you think are motivated by those things, though? Um, I, I, I can't help but think about the fact that, you know, even as a parent, I try to motivate my kid to be empathetic. I want, you know, we want, we want that for young children. We teach them that as they grow up. But then you look around at the people who tend to be most successful in business and for better or for worse, a lot of them just never got taught empathy. I mean, I think of people like Ray Kroc and, and the way McDonald's was formed into an empire or um, other, other, other incredibly successful people on both Wall Street and in business often tend to be somewhat cutthroat, right? So how many of those people are motivated by those things? And are you able to be, I mean, certainly you've been, but are many able to be successful in any industry while still having that sort of empathy and that sort of moral imagination um, and not looking out for themselves first? So I would say three things, actually, Clay. One is, just to your point about being a parent, as parents, we want our children to be kind, and we teach them to be kind, and we praise them for being successful. Um, We model for them that success looks like money, power, and fame. And so I don't think that kids follow what we say. I think kids follow what we, how we act, what we do. So we've grown up and our children have grown up in a society that has put money, power, and fame at the center of all of our systems. And so I don't think we should be surprised that so many of our leaders um, move from a place that almost has a value set that is, that is grounded in a sense that I can only win if you lose. I can only be right if you're wrong, that binary. Um, What excites me, though, is that I'm seeing a new generation, not just of young people, but across the world uh, and in in all sectors of life that don't want that system anymore, that recognize that we've got to move to a system that dares to put our our humanity, the sustainability of the earth at the center of our systems. And... um, And because we're starting to build, and it's the beginning, but we're starting to see not just the social entrepreneurs with whom I work, but larger companies change the way the narrative is operating and change the way that they're doing business. To me, it means we have the hope of a new set of role models that um, are caring about stakeholders, are caring about solving tough social problems. And... um, I don't think there's going back at this point um, because we're all going to rise or fall together. And, and if this pandemic hasn't taught us, climate change is right on its heels uh, to remind us. I mean, but we talk on we've done this show for a year over a year now. And one constant theme from Everyone who I speak with, whether it's political or non-political, whether they're conservative or progressive, um, tends to be that everyone thinks the current system is broken. Like that, if you want to talk about what we can all agree on, which is very little, we can all agree. it's that we can all agree <laughs> the current system is broken. But 
no one yet in how many <laughs> decades has been able to actually really change it, right? Are there people that you can look to in the United States or in the world even that are currently in leadership who have this sort of moral imagination, to use your term, um, that is necessary to kind of really get in there and make structural change? So I'm kind of at a point where I think that we don't need another hero, but we do need a million heroic acts. And that is really part of the, the, the point of the book. Um, yes, am I, I am starting to see, um, a, as I said, a whole generation of these more purpose-driven entrepreneurs who start with this idea of the moral imagination of change. So case in point, uh, 2007, two young guys, um, from America come in with this concept that they are going to eradicate uh, kerosene. 1.5 billion people in the world at that point had no electricity whatsoever. That's 140 years after Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. 1.5 billion people. Um, they're young guys. They've never built a business and they have a $30 solar lantern. But their dream is big. We back them first with about a quarter million dollars of patient early stage patient capital We've accompanied them for 14 years. Their company has actually figured out how low-income people make decisions, what they value. And I'm talking about people who make 2 $3 a day. Um, they've built a counter system. They've reached over 100 million low-income people profitably um, that have allowed those, those individuals not only to get that light, but over time, a television, a radio, things that matter in their own lives, productive things that allow them to make more money. But it's also allowed us then to go on a journey with them. We are now the largest off-grid solar energy investor in the world for the poor. And, and, and I've watched an ecosystem grow now of hundreds of companies that represent over 400,000 new jobs across Africa and South Asia that, um, that have reached 400 million people. So now you're really moving the needle on a major global problem with a system that is not the, the grid, which in many countries is completely broken, corrupt, um, bankrupt, but a new system that is anti-fragile, that allows the poor real access, that is creating not just jobs, but careers. So I know it's possible. And I think we could bring some of that moral imagination into this country. But it's still, I mean, I'm just playing, I want to play devil's advocate for a second, because I'm sure you've got an answer to this, um, or I hope you do. <laughs> it's still for profit, though, right? I mean, at some point, there is a motive. I mean, it's, it would be difficult to convince a lot of people that it is only altruism that, that drives those two young Americans that you're talking about. It is still a for profit a uh, company, correct? And and at some point, how do how do you keep those folks, or how do you encourage anyone to not allow themselves to be motivated by money? When Google comes a call in and says, "Oh, we love what you're doing. We'll pay you, you know, three billion dollars for your company." Uh, somebody's going to say yes. You don't think they'd say yes? You wouldn't say yes. Somebody might say yes, but well. In this case, Google's customers will still be making two, three dollars a day. And so you're still going to have to figure out a way to 
bring those goods and services to them. If you look at Sam Goldman and Ned Tozen, though, um, when they started this company, Clay, and we talked about how to price solar, all three of us had graduated from Stanford Business School, so not a bad business school. No, no, and, no. You um, certainly know what you're doing. <laughs> and No, I'm only saying that so that it wasn't like we were like, oh, peace, save the world. We were – their question to me was, how do you price a an, an, a, a unit of, of electricity, of um, you know, solar for solar, when you're not trying to maximize profit, but when you're trying to reach the poorest? And I was like, well, we, we didn't really learn that one in business school. We only learned how you maximize profit. And so these guys were driven by solving a problem. What I'm seeing in the United States today, and we now have almost 30 companies in which we've invested, um, which is, again, just uh, just the beginning, I believe, of a movement of entrepreneurs that are driven to solve the problems because they, they see that those problems need to be solved in this country, uh, is a lot of, of private-public partnerships. Um, similar kinds of people that could do anything. Abby Wamimo, he's a, he's a Nigerian immigrant and his partner, um, uh, Samir Goen, they, they have a company called Isusu, which um, recognized that it's really hard to build a credit record in this nation. If you don't have a credit record, you can't borrow. It's really hard then to have choice and dignity in your life. And so they had the insight, Abby had been at Goldman Sachs, that if he could take people's uh, rental income records and prove that they were good bets, they could long-term earn and build a credit record. So for the left, you're actually dealing and supporting people who've been systemically excluded, whether by race or by income. For the right, you're dealing with real accountability to allow people to build their own lives. And, um, and it's a viable business. During the pandemic, but couldn't it also be that, a viable? Couldn't it also be a viable nonprofit? Yeah, I'm actually. So what's the what, sure. So why not make it that? I mean, why, I guess that's what the argument is. I'm, I'm only trying to to challenge here and say, you know, so, the, the difference between a nonprofit and a and a and a for profit, right? Is that we're trying to increase the amount of money that. If you do a nonprofit, then everything goes right back into doing it. You certainly continue to pay the people who work there. You continue to pay the executives, but you don't make extra money and put it in your pocket. So I guess why not do it that way? So increasingly, I'm finding for-profit companies that are being structured in ways that um, are both creating wealth for employees, um, partnering with government and reinvesting their profit in supporting others. Look, Acumen's a nonprofit. And we, in addition to the $150 million we've invested on the philanthropic side, we also have Acumen Academy, which is a nonprofit academy for the World School for Social Change. But then we also have four um, for-profit vehicles with another $200 million. Those for-profit vehicles sit underneath the, the nonprofit. So while there will be incentives to build and grow companies like Delight, Acumen um, benefits in ways that any profit that comes to us gets reinvested, reinvested in innovation for the poor. I am starting to see an extraordinary array of hybrid models 
that are driven by entrepreneurs who want to solve our problems. I'm going to give you one other example because it's in Los Angeles. And it's from a former Wall Streeter who saw how broken our systems were and um, and not just our financial system, but also our our food systems. And he was looking at food deserts and um, wanted to solve it. And so he started with a nonprofit trying to train low-income women in Compton, Los Angeles, uh, how to get access to healthy food, green markets, et cetera, et cetera. But there were no green markets. Women had no time. And he, you talked about Ray Kroc. He had the insight that what if he could build a restaurant that was affordable, valued by people, employed people in the community, um, and that was fast. And so he created a company called Every Table, uh, which was so valued by the, by, by the community that he grew to eight restaurants. First day of the pandemic, when all the, the restaurants shut down, he obviously had to as well. He put out a tweet and said, if you need food, um, let us know, we'll deliver it. If you can't afford, let, it, let us know, we'll deliver it anyway. And if you're willing to pay it forward, here's a link. And within weeks, people across Los Angeles we're paying it for it so that hundreds of thousands of meals could be served. Then this company partnered with government so that they could actually deliver healthy, affordable meals to people in homeless shelters, people who had, who had no access to food during the pandemic. And they've delivered over 6 million meals. Throughout all of this, they realized that particularly um, that, that they, were, they, they are now a high growth company. They have a real opportunity to build new franchises but they didn't want to do it the McDonald's way. They wanted to do it in a way that was inclusive of the people they were actually serving. So they built Every Table Academy. Um, quote unquote investors, you can call them investors or philanthropists, are helping them raise $10 million um, that will be paid back, but I think at 1% or 6% interest over 10 years, so that Every Table can train and on lend money to high-performing employees with a real focus. I'm going to choose to call them investors employees. and not philanthropists then. Thank you. <laughs> they didn't Thank get a write-off. <laughs> they, didn't get a, they didn't get a philanthropic write-off and they're not getting a lot of interest back. And, um, but they see it's the right thing to do to build this country. And, um, and, the, and the focus is on 40 black and brown-owned franchises that will be a transfer of wealth, role models in the community, new jobs, um, and I'm seeing more and more examples of this that are not ideological, that really could help us bridge the left-right divide, that use the tools of business but are not maniacally focused on profiting a few shareholders and hold themselves to account to solve our, our biggest social problems. It's not the only way that we solve these problems, Clay, but I actually believe that we don't have enough role models. An hour ago, I was talking to a dozen 18-year-olds who were just blew me away, but none of them have a role model. They said, we look at the adults and you guys have created these failed systems and every time we put one of you on a pedestal, you fall off anyway. And I said, look, I'm not asking for a hero. I'm asking for a role model. And they're like, sorry. We probably ought to stop putting people on pedestals first. <laughs> I said, I said, we got to get, we got to. Stop putting people on pedestals. And where I lived in Central Africa, you didn't even get your name on anything until you were dead, just so that we could like make sure you lived a good life. And um, which the kids thought was a probably really not good a bad idea. idea. 
Right? Not a bad idea. Um, so, so is, are there we need new role models? Are there people? Um, do we need? Sorry, that's not the right question. Do we need to then? Are we just left to rely on the goodness of others? Because I guess you, when you were talking about um, every table, I heard you say they then partnered with the government. And I thought, well, shit, shouldn't the government have been doing that themselves the entire time without needing to wait for a, a, a philanthropic organization or a, the kindness of others? Shouldn't they have been doing it? And the truth is, most of the time, government doesn't necessarily do those things unless someone else gets involved. I mean, are we just kind of, it, how, do, how do we convince our politicians and leaders to act that way? Or how do we do, or if we can't, how do we do a better job of electing those people who have that sort of altruistic mentality um, into, into government? Because right now, it seems like most of the folks who are in politics, and we talk about politics on this Politicon program, um, <laughs> it seems like most of them are not following this moral revolution that you're uh, working to keep moving. I think our politicians are missing a real opportunity in not following um, what a new generation is talking about, thinking about, and demanding. And I would put our corporate leaders in the same place, that you're not going to be able to build a high-value company, nor will you stay long-term in elections if you don't recognize that the, the generations coming up are, are demanding sustainability, are demanding um, a greater sense of fairness on all sides of the political divides. And so um, I actually think that our, our politicians would be well-served to pay attention, and frankly, in many, in many places they are. I was talking to one of our entrepreneurs last night who runs a company um, to take on addiction. And you talk about the confluence of broken systems. You've got the broken healthcare system, the, the, the opioid addiction, and the way that we have failed to address it. Uh, the criminal justice system, um, where there is a lot of addiction and we, and race and race. And so um, I asked her the same question, Clay. Um, I said, well, are you making the case, you know, that the private sector should deliver healthcare? She said, absolutely not, Jacqueline. I said, well, shouldn't, sh are you, should we make the case that government should be doing this? She said, well, you know, there's a role for fast, nimble innovators to actually create the kinds of approaches that in the case of addiction, recognize how quickly the world has changed, that we have uh, an, an opioid addiction problem largely in the rural areas um, and that people are in states where or counties where there are no uh, opioid treatment centers where there's great deal of shame in lining up every single day for your methadone or whatever the treatment might be um, where people don't have time or money even to get there. And so to move that fast and build a solution that's based on telemedicine, bespoke care, a different kind of care model over the course of two years, uh, we could wait for government to, to understand how to build that, or government could partner with companies like Boulder Care and, and learn and build the right kinds of policies, build the right kinds of tax breaks. Um, our media could tell the right kinds of stories. 
I'm, you're part of it now, man. <laughs> no, I know, I know, but I laugh at the, I laugh at the idea that they will. Um, I mean, listen, division. You know this. Division is profitable, right? Division makes so money. It makes a whole bunch of money. I mean, we, the things that you're talking about seem like common sense, and to, and to be completely honest many would argue that they were sort of those types of public-private partnerships or those types of, um, uh, they're almost kind of compromised solutions because they don't make it a government-run healthcare service and they certainly don't leave it in the hands only of private for-profit corporations. Those types of compromise systems were, you know, perfectly acceptable and even encouraged by some on the right in the mid 2000s but now they're you know division and and being so when you said earlier you know if you don't do this altruistic method if you don't have the empathy if you don't have the heart for kind of helping people and improving their lives then you won't stay in office very long i would beg to differ because it's happened quite a bit people have stayed in because of the profitability and the electoral success of division so is there a way to demotivate people from from you know using that to kind of prevent us from getting anything done clay i hope so look you know when i go back to my own history and wasn't it kennedy who said that those who make um peaceful revolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable Mm. and um i don't want to get all overly dramatic on you here But remember, my background is Rwanda. I started an institution with five extraordinary women. um, And in the run-up to the genocide, I watched politicians use the tools of division of us and them. I I watched them use the tools of preying on our, our, our broken parts, our fears, our insecurities, um, and rather than confront what those fears and insecurities were about, blame other people. And, and I watched, not personally, I wasn't there, but, but my friends um, killed each other. They were on all sides of the genocide. And I went back after that genocide and I sat in the prisons with some of the people that I had built an institution of social justice with. And... And it, it, it wasn't a very different situation. And so I take incredibly seriously that it's not, just, it's not just about altruism. It's about deciding as a human race, who do we want to be? And recognize that the only way we start to build trust is to acknowledge that all of us are imperfect, that all of us have something to offer, the I'm not laughing at that. I'm laughing at our abilities to recognize that. <laughs> I know, <laughs> but we got to start somewhere. We got. Every, You're an optimist. Thing about you, well, hold on. I have seen the ugliest things in the world. I know you that's know, what I'm saying. You're an incredible optimist to be able to continue to have this much amount, this much faith, right? I would say that I, I, I am a, I'm a realist that is driven by hard edged hope. That I feel like I have a very short time on this earth. And I don't want people in 100 years to say, look at how ridiculously selfish and stupid they, they were. Look at, I want them to say, look at how hard they tried. 
and um, and I want to find all those people who want to try. And I believe that they are on every side. In fact, I, I actually don't know anybody who is purely left or purely right. Um, but we have thrown these words. You know, I sit with 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 in in rooms, and it's like capitalism, socialism, capitalism. And I'm like, well, I've actually worked in both societies. <laughs> Let me tell you the good and the bad of both. Tell me the values under underneath those words. Tell me the problems that we want to solve, and then we can figure out the right kind of capital. We can figure out the right business structure. For-profit, non-profit, government, I'm all in. But show me the ones that have actually had an impact on people's lives in a positive way. we got to get back to that as a nation. You're right. So, it, no, keep going. Sorry, I didn't mean to stop you. Well, no, just in the 40s and the 50s, our business leaders saw themselves as citizens. Um, hmm. And uh, and frankly, so did our politicians. <laughs> we've had periods where we've had buffoonery and selfishness, but we can get through it. But we need to have those nonconformists who dare step out, uh, tell a different story, um, a story of ourselves that in which we can see each other. And I actually... My way of doing it is finding those entrepreneurs who are building solutions for people who are unlike themselves and are specifically focused on bringing the people who've been overlooked and underestimated. And I think within that, we can all find ourselves. So we usually do a segment on um, that from listeners uh, who have written in questions because they knew you would be with us. Um, and I have some of those. I love this one. Can moral imagination only take hold in rich societies? How essential is capitalism? Oh, I love that question, Dan. Um, I love it. Moral imagination could take place in any society. We have a fellow in in, uh, in Pakistan named Shamim Akhtar. Um, she grew up in a in a community where girls had never been educated in any generation. And um, when she was born, to I think her her mom was fifteen and her dad was thirteen. Um, her dad's elder brother mortified that a girl was born, said, um, well, let's just dress her as a boy and we'll get her educated. And, um, and so Shamim grew up as a boy. And when she uh, went through puberty um, and the fa- her father said, it's time now for you to join your, sis- your cousins and your sisters, um, Shamim went on a hunger strike and it's a long story, but she ended up going all the way through a university. And um, she became an acumen fellow in, in Pakistan and, and decided through meeting people from across her country that so inspired her that were indeed her peers, but also role models, that um, she needed to go back. And she needed to, as she said, find a lot of other shamims and teach uh, girls across the villages nearby where she grew up. And she said to me um, that, she said, Jacqueline, you know, I teach them the writings of Dr. Martin Luther King, of Nelson Mandela. And when I do stand there, I dream of who they will be going forward. Um, you could look at Shamim as, a, as a, a girl who grew up with nothing. But um, all she thinks about is what the world could be with this incredible audacity, but she operates from a place of incredible humility. And I get to interact. We have 
almost 800 fellows like this from across the world. So I have met people um, in some of the meanest slums and in the most rural areas who uh, would give everything, um, but, but, but have a dream for a world that's better than the one they're in. And hmm. I so make no, a, Dan, I make a, it no, Dan, it doesn't have to just be rich countries. And it doesn't right. just have to be a capitalist solution. Right. Okay, Dan also asks, and I like this one too. Um, he says, amazing things have happened within public-private spheres. How can politicians and people tell the difference between the altruistic and profiteers? How, can, how do you do it at Acumen? Well, first of all, I don't have a perfect track record. Um, I have made mistakes. Um, there are I don't know what that's like. I've never made one of those, so I'm not sure <laughs> what that means. <laughs> Kidding, obviously. Well, I'll tell you, it, it, it feels like betrayal, you know, when you're working so hard to try to solve a problem and then you're like, oh, what you really did was sell me a story. Mm -hmm. It goes back in part to why I wrote the book. That, um, that when, when, when Acumen now looks at investment, um, while we still pay attention to spreadsheets and projections, et cetera, et cetera, uh, we look at the person's character. We um, ask them questions about what they have done to immerse, in other words, to get proximate or actually um, how are they listening to the people that they are, that are there to serve? What can they tell us about those people? and their interests and beliefs. We're not so interested in their own solutions. Um, how do they derive those solutions? When have they failed? What do they learn from those failures? And if they give us a, an answer that is clearly packaged, um, don't want to invest in them either. How do they take feedback? Um, you can learn a lot about a person by spending time with them. And so we've gotten a lot better at being able to tell the the phonies from the um, the ones who are going to do the work, and and I wouldn't call them all altruistic. I would just call them um, problem solvers. That and I think there's a new generation that's better than the one that I grew up in, where you were either a do-gooder or you were a profit maker. There's a generation that wants to solve the toughest problems of our day. Can you be um, both? Can what, you be selfish and a problem solver at the same time? I think we're all selfish at some level, and I think we're all altruist at some level. But we have been idealizing and prioritizing and lionizing the selfish, and we have been excusing really bad behavior by really rich people. Um, when in fact we could be doing, we could be lionizing those who are successful based not on how much money they make, but on the kind of energy they unlock. You know, I look at a Sam Goldman who's brought electricity and light to 100 million people, and I think, imagine the energy that, that, that young, those two young men have unlocked in the world. Um, they can sleep well at night, I'll tell you that. It has not been an easy run, and they are not rich men, um, but, but, but they are some of the wealthiest people I know. Well, that's a... Beautiful way to put that. I'm going to move on to, sorry, Dan, I'm going to move on to some of the questions from folks who uh, wrote in for us because um, I definitely, we got a lot of good ones and I want to get to as many as I can here. Um, Stephen from San Francisco asks, at what point is it worth sacrificing a career for your values? Is it better to do it when you're young or old? 
It's better to do it when you're ready. And what I, point is that? Um, you know, at Akimu, we talk all the time about doing what's right, not what's easy. And in a way, it goes to what I just said about the other two, that um, what do we have at the end of our lives but our reputation? And, uh, and so I don't know, again, if it's about sacrificing a career, and I, and I almost reject the word sacrifice. Um, when I left banking, it wasn't because I thought it was a bad, a, a bad operation. In fact, I went to my boss and said, could we work to um, lend to low-income people? I'll build that program for you here in Brazil. Um, he gave me a book called The Innocent Anthropologist. Um, so that clearly the answer was no, and there wasn't a place there. But I would have had he said yes. Um, for people who find corruption um, and can't change from the inside, well, go find a place where you can thrive and flourish. I think that's more important uh, to figure out. But I wouldn't see it um, as much as sacrifice as choice, um, asking who do you want to be. Okay, Nina from Miami says, asks, sorry, if people in our network aren't keeping up with the times, is it time to quietly phase them out? I don't believe in exiling people who haven't kept up with times. I, I actually don't believe in exiling people at all. Um, it's, a, it's a tricky question. I don't know if, if she's talking about friends or if she's talking about um, people in the community. But um, what I have found is, can we model that we are listening from a place um, not always of trying to convince or convert, but to change ourselves? And when we do, and when we can acknowledge even a tiny truth in what the other side has to say, it can open a field. One of my favorite poems is a from the Sufi poet Rumi, who says, beyond right doing and wrongdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. So um, at some point, if you're so exhausted because the person on the other side isn't open to change, doesn't want to listen, um, and you've given everything that you have, find those people who will. When I first started Acumen, a number of people would say, well, why are you trying so hard to um, to help people solve the AIDS crisis. You know, isn't it better if that people just die? <laughs> I was like, I think I'll go somewhere else. Um, <laughs> right? Imagine. There are moments where you have to just like go to where you can win. But when, when we're stuck as a nation together, we got to find a way to live together. Mm, okay. I'm going to throw one. I'm going to throw a, a, a little bit more political one at you because I think it's a good question. I want to know your opinion. Trish from Detroit asks, will a global minimum corporate tax rate help bring equity to the world or is it just another way for global, global corporations to make us think they're paying, paying their share? I think there's a really interesting conversation to have around um, global taxes. I, I'm not sure, I'm not the right person to talk about a global minimum corporate tax rate but we have so many companies now that have platforms and the majority of their employees in other nations. We have so many companies that are making money based on information and data from individuals around the world. And I think it really behooves us to have a very serious conversation about 
how we create a global tax for those companies who um, operate globally. And so I'd be all in on um, that conversation and think that that's, I, I hope that becomes an inevitable conversation. Okay, I'm going to do one last one from Dan real quick. Um, <laughs> whether it's M-Pesa, am I getting that right? M-Pesa? Sorry, Dan. Whether it's M-Pesa. M- okay, there you go. You already know what it is. Or other offerings, microfinance in Africa has helped pl- level the playing field. Should we be encouraging similar systems in the United States? So, Clay, I'm sorry about this, but I got to go out to lunch with, with, with Dan, Dan. <laughs> I figured you'd. I, I very, almost never do this, but uh, he's so into this. So... <laughs> I love that question. Well, the reason I love that question is that there are so many models, and it's where America could use a a new humility. There are so many models um, that have been built in resource-poor nations that could teach us, and they they are busting with moral imagination. And in fact, the solar lighting companies that I'm talking about have been so effective because they are partnering with M-Pesa in Kenya and in, in other mobile money and other nations. But um, in, in, in Kenya, everyone has a smartphone. Um, in fact, in most of the continent of Africa, small farmers, smallholder farmers have uh, cell phones and smartphones. And that technology has opened a world of opportunity in terms of distributing not only information, but um, money, um, lending, the ability so why don't we to do get that access here? to lighting. I think, well, we're starting to do mobile money here, but we have been, we're literally, 2011 was really where the, where the revolution kind of like took off across Africa with mobile money. Um, so we're a decade behind Africa. Um, and it's the innovator's dilemma. Often the the successful status quo giant um, is complacent, and the small scrappy upstart. It's why I believe in entrepreneurs is innovating, changing. But the you know the old adage is that if you don't disrupt yourself, you're not going to disrupt the world. And it is time for us to disrupt ourselves. And it's why I believe so much in the social entrepreneurs. The other model that I'm so excited by that has come from other nations, um, but during the AIDS crisis, uh, definitely South Africa, is what I would call the accompaniment model. It's an ancient model. The Jesuits talk about accompaniment as, you know, I'll hold a mirror to you. I'll help you see yourself better than you can see your own self. I'll walk with you. I'll help you solve your problems, but I won't solve it for you. You have to solve it yourself. And um, when you look at our health system, our opioid system, daycare, there's a a real opportunity to bring a model where we hire people from community, um, train them in the basics of healthcare, for instance, rudimentary rudimentary healthcare practices, um, and teach them to work with other community members who have chronic diseases like gout, diabetes, uh, hypertension, and, um, and do simple things, go on walks together, go to green markets, uh, Take, take their, their vitals. Um, and the companies that have been doing that and the nonprofits that have been doing that um, do so most effectively in partnership with government healthcare systems, Medicare, um, hospitals, um, with results that work for everyone. 
Hospitals see less patients, save money. Insurance plan and Medicare uh, saves a lot of money. The organization or the company has a revenue stream. People in the community get healthier. And even the, the employees go from dead-end jobs to feeling like they are part of solving a critical problem in their community and their own families end up getting healthier. Those are the kind of models that um, we need to bring um, into this country. Again, we're not focusing enough on those those models because we're screaming at each other as around, you know, health, private private healthcare, government healthcare. Um, it's the wrong conversation. The right conversation is how do we get good quality healthcare to every American. So, I mean, if you if you are listening and you're inspired, because I sort of am, by how optimistic and positive Jacqueline is here, um, <laughs> I encourage you to grab her book, Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, Jacqueline Novogratz, um, Manifesto for a Moral Revolution. But also, I want to ask if people are listening and they are excited about some of the stuff that Acumen is doing also, how can they find out more about the projects that you guys have, have helped helped foster into existence? Because some of them seem incredibly interesting and I want to learn more about them myself also. So how can people find out about more about Acumen and what you guys are working on? Well, bless you, Clay, for asking that question. Um, uh, it's easy. You just go to acumen.org, A-C-U-M-E-N.org, um, or acumenacademy.org, which is the World School for Social Change, if you want to take courses, including a course called um, The Path of Moral Leadership, which is the master course for the book. Um, and you'll meet people from all over the world um, in that course. I think it's I think it's fascinating what Acumen does, um, and it's you know there are a lot of we, we I can't tell you how many times I see a podcast or a show or whatnot say we're going to do the stories and talk about the issues that nobody else talks about we're going to do but it sounds like Acumen sort of is handling some of the problems that nobody else or is encouraging people to handle the problems that sort of nobody else wants to handle or is willing to handle or is trying to handle, and they're important ones. So I, um, again, it's Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, Jacqueline Novogratz, and you can find the information about um, the book and about uh, Jacqueline in our show notes. But but go to acumen.org also and kind of see the great work that they are involved in as well. Um, and I got to ask you, same thing we ask everyone, that no one knows the answer to still after what 68 episodes of this. Jacqueline, how the heck are we going to get along? Like we do anything. We make a decision. We take a step. We learn from that step. And we take the next step. Um, you know, you, you've said a few times, Clay, that I'm an optimist. But the opposite of cyn is cynicism. And cynicism is the best ally that the status quo has. We all agree that the the systems around us are fully broken. And so this is a moment for all, all of us to decide to change those systems, to reimagine those systems. And that starts with a single step. 